Hey internet, I'm Simon Squibb, your host at the Good Luck Club. I believe luck is an ingredient that's necessary for a successful life. Whatever you're starting, building or shipping, I'm here to tell you, without luck, you're not going to make it. I've been testing my luck as an entrepreneur since I was 15 years old. I've had plenty of failures and successes. And I'm fascinated by the things I couldn't control, the moments that made my career and the ones that threatened to end it. In each episode, I'll invite a guest to share their stories about luck, the good and bad, and together we'll test my theory about luck's role. Keshir Hanum is a former journalist and now performance speaker. The co-founder of a women's movement, Camel Assembly, a global collective of activists and artists, and a storyteller with the media company Dear World. Keshir has spoken for the New York Times and Fortune 500 companies like Marriott and Macy's and last year at the United Nations. She has contributed regularly to National Geographic, Fortune Magazine, Forbes and CNN amongst others and delivers performance-based keynotes to universities, conferences and art-based events all over the world. Welcome, Kashi. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. It's wonderful to have you here. Particularly because I don't from, live here. So all it's the way from New York yeah. to uh, join our podcast. How, how lucky are we? I feel so very honoured. Appreciate it very much. Well, I always like to start off the podcast by asking a, a question about what is success for you personally? How do you define success? Yeah, I mean, it was a good question. I haven't really thought about this uh, for a while. And I feel like I've had quite transformation in terms of what I value and what I do define as success. I think for me now, what success is in terms of what can be applicable across any project or industry is getting the job done well. So I can tell when something's been successful. And, and that is to say, you know, you can complete a task and it can be done, but the energy of how both parties feel about it can be off. And for me, that's not successful. I think you completed the task, but I really gauge it on delight. You know, I always try, especially say if working with clients or partners, it's like, how do I delight them so that we walk away and I feel like people are like, that was just fantastic versus like, okay, the job was done. We need to debrief, you know, the, the feeling of those two uh, sort of summaries is really different. So for me now, success looks like delight for both sides. I feel like I've done a really good job and the the other person working with me, whether it's a client, a partner, a, a business partner, you know, um, we both feel delighted. It's a great word. Actually, I've never heard anyone answer that question in that way. It's very unique. I think it's, to me, it, I, I, of course, I've known you a, a quite a while. It kind of reflects your personality as well, quite well, because you, you, you give a lot. And I guess all you're asking for in return is everyone's enjoying that, right? Right. I, that, that's very kind. Thank you. I, yeah, I think, you, you know, you saw me at the very beginning of my career in a lot of ways. And I think so much has happened in between that time when I was, well, I was 23 when I first started working for the company that you funded. Um, and since then, you know, nine years later, um, it's a different, I've experienced different things in that time. And I feel like I've also learned to accept that everything doesn't feel delightful. And I think that's a really important thing that we need to acknowledge. I think we give people the idea that, you know, quit your job, pursue your passion, start a business, and you will be delighted. And it's like, that's not real. <laughs> like, not 
eventually you find a satisfaction that comes from creating something that you have control over but I think it's I think it's misleading to tell people that it will be delightful the whole time that doesn't mean you can't have the metric of success as delight but um, I think that's really something that yes me as a person I like to infuse uh, fun and competency and um, representation and all those sorts of things um, but I think there is also a, a place to acknowledge that there are times where you struggle and that's very much part of the journey as well and to not be discouraged because of that. So what do you do if something doesn't delight? How, how do you, I mean, you, sometimes you don't know until the end, right? Mm, how, totally. How do, you, how do you prepare yourself to be delighted? Is there, is there a formula that you figured out or is it, is it luck, ironically? What, what, what is it? Um, you know, I, I don't know. I think what I can say from my experience has been when I work, when I try to do something that is inauthentic to who I am or to the business that I am directing, it doesn't work well. So I can give you the example of, not doesn't work well, but it's not as delightful. So with Camel Assembly, which began as a collective of female artists and activists and still continues to be this community around the world that essentially is a networking opportunity but has a lot of depth and soul and it's an ecosystem. It's had many different iterations as a business, which is a weird thing to start with, turning a, co a community into a business. But one of the first iterations of our business was as an agency. So we would work with different partners and we would create content or we would consult or we would you know, uh, make connections for them. And it didn't feel good. Like we, we really recently, probably at the end of last year, at the end of 2019, we realized that that wasn't actually what we want this to be. And since then we've switched and we're about to launch a podcast and it's the first time we're sort of sharing our voices. When I say our, my business partner, Yelda and I, our voices, and we're sharing the voices of our community. And we got that sponsored so easily because we partnered with a brand that was authentic, authentically aligned to what we were doing. And they understood the mission. They were like, oh yeah, we get it. You have a lot of really incredible women in your community. They're very influential. They're very kind and conscious. They're the kind of people we want to be associated with. How do we work together? And that, that was delightful. You know, I, I wrote down the, the sponsorship script and Yelda and I recorded it and I sent it back to the client and she sent me an email back being like, Keshia, I'm so impressed by how well you've understood the brand. And to me, that wasn't effortful. It wasn't a challenge to understand their brand. I just got what they were doing. I understood that they were being a sustainable company and that that was a real mission that they wanted to push. And so it was just really natural. And I think that that's something that's taken a long time for us to realize because making money is obviously the most important thing of a business for a, a lot of it. And working at how you make money, you can compromise. And I think you do need to do that. I'm not saying you don't do that. Um, but once you find your swim lane and you stay in it, it's just a lot more effective. I interpret, and tell me if I'm right, I interpret what you're saying as perhaps having the same moral code or the same values. And, and so, uh, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, what you're saying to the listeners is uh, basically before you do a partnership, perhaps consider are they aligned so that when you work together, one, it's effortless, to your point. It, it wasn't hard for you to understand that company because you feel the same way. And then as that process develops, it naturally ends up having more chances of being a delightful experience because your values are aligned. Is that, is that, is that the learning? I think that's 50% of it. And I think the other 50% is make sure that the mechanism is correct. And I think for us, values was always something that we would never compromise on. So, you know, we have constantly had brands asked to work with us and 
we've said no because we knew their morals weren't aligned. So that wasn't a, a difficult uh, filter to apply. What our challenge was is in knowing the specific mechanism of how to engage with that brand or that partner. And that took us a little bit longer because you, you kind of look around at the market and see what's working, what's not, blue ocean strategy, okay, let's move into here. And it sometimes just doesn't work, but you're not gonna know unless you try. And so that's why I say that it's not, it's not really avoidable, I don't think. I mean, you could maybe be highly strategic and highly calculated and try to omit partnerships that are not exactly aligned, but I don't know if that's even useful. I think that by engaging with misaligned partnerships, you learn what you don't want. It's a bit more painful, you might lose more money, it might take longer, but you have a clear emotional experience to reference. And I think that's ultimately more useful than you know, cognitively knowing what you're, you're seeking but never having actually gone through the experience. So I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of experience and I think it's, it's something that everybody should seek to pursue and almost understand that the, all experiences aren't gonna be positive. But I do think that, yes, making sure partners are aligned is like almost the minimum standard, but then the, the other 50% that will probably save you some pain is what's the actual mechanism that's gonna make this work? And a lot of the time you only learn that through experience. It's an interesting subject, this whole concept. I know a lot of people struggle in their businesses uh, to align themselves. So for example, I, I met a brand recently who's working quite a lot with uh, Esso. And so of course they've got money. The clothing brand? No, the uh, fuel, um, the, the uh, petrol. Oh, oh yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. the blue chemical. and white one. Exactly, yeah. And and there's a little bit of a, 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 a problem in the sense that of course, fossil fuels and, and using oil and all of that sort of you know, pollution and so on um, so that, that there's an element of I don't want to work with a company that's doing that however they also feel maybe to your point about mechanism they, they're getting involved um, not because they think that's a good thing um, but more because the company wants to fix it they say and we hope it's true right uh, that they want to move away from that go towards green energy so this company then is going to work with them to try and push support and make that happen but it's a very i had myself similar experience in early days of my agency business uh, fluid uh, where the tobacco companies would come to you and, and, and say look you know help us uh, educate people about smoking they'd use words like education as if as if as if that was uh, going to mitigate the the evil of, of, of what selling product people was, a drug. yeah so it's, it's interesting as a business as well how you know you you can justify or not justify involvement mm. but how, how have you how have you managed to navigate that considering mm. you have very strong core values what's I mean, we've just said no a lot of the time. Mm, I think, it, yeah, you're saying no to money is really hard. Mm. Um, I, I think it's actually even because people don't prepare you for that either. You know, in the in the conversation of being an entrepreneur, people don't ever have the conversation of you're. I, I mean, in conscious entrepreneurialism, say if we were to call it that, people don't give you the tools to to say no, and so then you end up, you know, double double guessing yourself and wondering was that the right thing to do because now I'm I'm hindered you know I don't have enough money and I think that's why I was on a panel in New York the other day with a lot of for a, a women building women breakfast and a lot of the women were talking about how they quit their jobs and quit their corporate whatevers and started their own businesses and again yes it's a highly fulfilling thing to do and as somebody who's been largely contractual or self-employed since 2014 I have benefited from it but no one ever talks about you know how much anxiety comes with that because 
you're constantly waking up aware that you need to pay yourself and pay the people that are working for you. People don't talk about how isolating it can be because you're you're working alone and by yourself. People don't talk about how often you say no to deals and that leads you to a certain state of poverty. And so you're not actually able to afford healthcare. Or you're not, you know, real, real things that it's not just like, oh, I can't go on a holiday this year. It's like real things where it's been like, I remember the week before it was it was just such a wonderful example of the plurality of life it was the week before i spoke at the un in july of last year around storytelling and whatever and two weeks before that i had 36 dollars in my account you know and it's just and like you're about to speak at this conference as a leader as a pioneer somebody who's made it right, successful right, can, i've got 36 dollars in my oh, bank account yeah. and it was just like cool okay and you know and and it's just accepting that and not i think certainly you know, there are things like bottom line where you have to look at it objectively. There's no emotional value attached to that. But I think there's a certain um, responsibility you have to yourself to stay buoyant mm -hmm. and not tie yourself to metrics of success, uh, which I honestly struggle with. I'm very, I'm very rational and I'm very, um, you know, I'm a Virgo. I like, I'm quite pedantic and I like to think ahead and plan. And there's a lot of times where I go into a scarcity mindset and I'm like, there's not enough. We're not working hard enough. We haven't made enough deals. And fortunately, my business partner is a lot more laissez-faire um, and we have a good balance there. And, and she will kind of remind me and say, we need to have an abundant mindset here. We need to believe and recognize also the position we're in, which is far better than we were 12 months ago, you know? And I think it's the balance of like being real, but also not being too hard on yourself. And so when it comes to navigating those deals, you know, it's, it's hard to say no to people that you don't believe in. But honestly, once you start saying yes, you know, it's like you've opened the damn wall. It, it's very hard. The f it's the first time you do it, it's hard. But then the second time it comes a bit easier. And then the third time it's a little bit easier. And the fourth time, until all of a sudden you're at a place of compromise and you're wondering how you got there and it was because of the first time you did it, you know? You got, you got corrupted, mate. By, yeah. this, by the system or the pressure. I mean, it's just, it's a very gentle slope. I think, you know, we look at some corrupt leaders and we're like, how did you get here? Yeah. It's like, they didn't just, and they already have it wasn't an overnight. The and they're still, they're still taking a five million bribe, totally. you know, like the, totally. it's never enough and it's just because it's become a yeah. way of life. And greed can do that to you, you know? And I think Western values and, and, you know, I think capitalism is one of the greatest religions that's ever been. And there's, there's very little moral structure with capitalism. So, you know, it's like, are you making money? Is there a way to make more money? Okay, well, that's the best thing to do, but that's not the best thing to do. It's actually damaged people's culture, mental health, opportunities. Yeah. You know, it's quite an oppressive regime in a lot of ways. Conceptually, it might be worthwhile, but I think there's a lot wrong with it. And so I just think that we, we have to just be a bit more honest about that and um, hold ourselves to higher standards. Well, I think there's a, like you say, a societal pressure that I've also felt, so I can relate to your point about $36 before you go on stage. In 2003, I was living in Hong Kong, we had SARS, and we had a major cash flow problem in our business. Wow. Yet the government had me up on stage talking about how great Hong Kong was and you know, not to worry and everything's gonna be fine. And you know, you have this kind of compromise of, well, actually we're struggling during this time, as I know a lot of people in Hong Kong right now are struggling, mm. but somehow you've got to push on. Mm. And, and so there's an element that kicks in, I don't know if you felt this, it was around imposter syndrome, mm -hmm. where you have an element of like, you are successful you've been invited to go talk about what you're doing it's mm. not 
stand up and please tell us how much is in your bank account. Yeah, is it? totally. It's not stand up and tell us that. It's stand up and tell us what you've learned and what mm. you know and what you can share. But mm. for some reasons, maybe it's that subconscious or the training we're given in, in Western society for sure that, well, actually your bank balance is what really matters. That's why Donald Trump stands up and says, I've got 10 billion in my bank. I know I'm what to do. I'm going to run for president. As if that, yeah, it doesn't mean anything. Totally. Well, I think in, in Western culture, you know, your self-worth is deeply tied to your productivity. And, and I would say that's probably even more so for men uh, because that's the messaging of adequacy from a very young age, you know. And so I think the, the uh, concern is when we tie people's value to their output, it's, you know, you're making people commodities. And um, not even commodities, you're making them tools, you're making them functions. And, you know, you can't value a human in the same way you value a, a machine that makes cars, but we do. We say, well, how effective have you been today? How much have you got done? We do the same thing in a, in a, um, a factory line. And that's concerning <laughs> because humans are not machines. They're, they have souls and we have emotions. And I think we've, we've separated those things for far too long. And um, I, I do see that changing, but we have very, very deep ingrained values that we have to rewire the brain to acknowledge. And we also have to teach empathy, I think, in, in business scenarios. Do you think empathy is teachable? Yes, I, I think we have to believe it is. And yeah, I think it is. I think that the reason the, the civil rights movement was as, as successful in some ways, some people will say that it is, it wasn't successful and it held up a certain type of, um, of protest that you know, still kept people subordinate. But I think in terms of it changing legislature, I think there is much to be said of empathy. And I have certainly, in the work that I've done across the world, seen that empathy is really the, the first thing that we have to teach. Because if you can understand where somebody's coming from, it's hard to hate them. Um, but if you can deduce somebody to labels and otherings, it's very easy to manipulate the narrative according to what you need. And so I think empathy is really, really necessary. And actually what's cool is one of the one of the things I do a lot of work around is storytelling with an organization called Dear World. And that's very much a storytelling facilitation. I'll do a 20 minute keynote and then I'll do a 30 minute facilitation about um, taking people through their own lives, finding a story, one story, and taking a line from that story, writing it on their body, and then taking a portrait of them. And this portrait serves as a conversation starter. And so people are sort of asking, why did you write that thing on your body? And then all of a sudden you're having a conversation about something that's meaningful to you. And that idea of being able to create spaces in the workplace where people can bring their whole selves, you know, an integrated self that is okay to talk about a mother's illness or you know, a, a car accident somebody had or a goal that you have that maybe you've never shared, like these quite personal things that I actually don't think have had a place in business for a long time because we've we've ostracized the two, you know, you're Almost either... like emotions shouldn't be a part of business. Right? Totally. Somehow. And I'm sure Absolutely. you've seen that in all of the work well, that you've done. People say, don't take it personally. And I, I, why would I do anything that I don't take personally? <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely going to take this very personally. That's and we should problem. take it personally. And I think that's, yeah, I think we've, I think we've really confused people. I think like that's, and I see that especially in the younger people, they're really hopeful and really tenacious and very driven. You and were like that when I met you, by the way, <laughs> all of those traits. I like to think that I still have a little bit, but I think what I see with Gen Z, so the generation below mine, um, they have had the internet their whole lives. And so they just know a lot about a lot, you know, they're constantly educating me about 
you know, very peripheral things that don't make into the mainstream because I still read the BBCs and the CNN right. and the New York Times. And so a lot of my information is quite mainstream. And I'm really amazed by their potential, you know, like I, I think that sadly they have this, this um, Venn diagram of knowing more than we ever did, but also knowing too much and almost being paralyzed mm. by the information they have. Mm. And so I see a lot of them with really good foundation of, of what's important but with no ability to execute it. Mm. And sort of a, a sort of like looking at leaders and being like, can you please tell me what right. to do? Because right. I, don't, I don't know how to move forward, but I know that I want to change the world and I want to improve the world and I feel like I can. Um, and I think that's something that we need to take more seriously and, and provide more structure for. Yeah, it seems like the, the younger generation, I mean, I've been quite heavy on TikTok lately. Oh yeah, and, and I've, I've really, never been on it. I've really enjoyed um, understanding the demographic on that platform. A lot of people say, well, why are you bothering on that platform? It's for very young people, but it also teaches you what's coming. And what I'm seeing is a trend growing that started on things like Instagram and Facebook, and I'd love your opinion on this, but I see a trend basically where the young people are very purposeful. They actually want to be involved in businesses, not just for money, actually. Uh, They want to be involved in things that are making a difference. However, they're also trapped in bubbles, thanks to algorithms. Yes. So there's there's a certain element of people that get caught, let's call it the Kardashian bubble, Mm -hmm. where they think it's all about celebrity and making money and driving a Bentley, Mm. and they get caught in that. And then you've got the other side, which I think is the intellectual bubble, where maybe there's about politics needs to change and activism and all those sorts of things. I mean, do you see that playing out? Mm. Yeah, I, I think particularly in America, we were just talking about that, there's a binary you know, where you're, I, I said this, I was speaking at a, sh- a university for their Martin Luther King Day a couple of weeks back, and I spoke about in the West, we love labels, you know, we love people to be Republicans or Democrats, liberal or labor. Um, you're either queer or you're straight, you're white or you're a person of color, you're good or you're bad. And we, we cling to them because obviously language allows us to reason through the world. Um, but also it, it means that we don't have to do that much work because, you know, if you're a Republican, then you voted for Trump and I don't like you. It's lazy versus being like, why did you do that thing? That's interesting. I didn't do that thing. But you obviously had a reason to, you know, and all of that mental work, the brain is doing in a split second. And I, I think that we're, we're really ill-equipped to deal with complexity. And um, I think that the nature of technology platforms it's just a double-edged sword you know I was talking to to one of my my friends kids the other day in Salt Lake City and she was talking about how she really respects the internet but she thinks people aren't using it correctly and I think that's what a lot of young people feel they see the potential of it but I think they're being burned whether because really aggressive stuff goes on you know like really aggressive stuff happens on the internet in terms of the comment section in terms of um, how people treat each other I think it's really uh, painful and ugly um, but I also think that you know protests have started across the world and the the march that the kids did around the climate march mm. started because yes Greta put the call out and then her essentially like partner in it who is not even in the same country started the whatsapp groups and then the whatsapp groups spread and then that's how this march 
began. But, but talking, I mean, it's so true what you're saying. And it's interesting because on the other side, I saw, I've been listening to lots of different news channels too, deliberately outside my own bubble. And I noticed that some of the radio stations are like, oh, I bet if it wasn't a school day, the kids wouldn't want to do that. There's a lot of cynicism, cynicism out there. And, and the, misinformation. I think it's the opposite of empathy, actually. Yeah. There's, people are just instantly assuming the worst. And these kids aren't doing it because they believe in the cause. They're doing it because they're getting a day off school. Yes. Right. So there's yeah. that counter argument on everything that now these people that are just talking rubbish frankly have a platform in which to do it thanks to the internet mm. i actually think the internet is also not serving people right i mean these algorithms are, mm. are designed to make money aren't they they're not designed to educate people yeah i think i i don't feel like i'm educated enough to understand how algorithms work exactly i from what i've understood you know yes they are created so that you can sell ads in a way that is tailored to a person's interest as a standalone fact, I don't think that's that harmful. But when we take into consideration the way that ads and news are now combined, I, I it's just challenging because like there's another element, and I, I see this in politics in the US, that people are cheating. They're not playing by the same rules, you know? And that's why Democrats are just constantly in sort of chaos because they're all trying to appeal to the best good of people using and I'm not saying all of them are angels, but like largely using correct methods. And then there are a lot of people that are cheating and are sending false facts out and are using these platforms in a dishonest way. And you, it's it's like, it, you can't do that. You run in a race and somebody has been on steroids, they're gonna win, you know, like, and I, and I, I think that's really um, discouraging. It's not hopeless because I do believe that truth wins out in the end. I hope you're right. Um, me too. Because but I think I think there's an element of it that um, the counter argument that you hear from people that cheat is, well, um, I'm leveraging the system. Totally. And so, you know, you talk about drugs in sports. I mean, Russia had a whole government structure around drugging all their athletes in this day and age. Mm -hmm. We're not talking the 90s when they were only testing people every so often in you know we're talking about modern olympic games they have a government sponsored cheating system yeah, right so do you, do you think they're not interfering in the election of course they are of course so, they are you know now this is going to get broadcast in russia but do we care <laughs> you know, no but yeah but it's, it's, it's fascinating. Activists. i mean do, do you think it, it, i mean uh within the bubble that you're in um and of course the community that you're you're working with very closely do you think things are changing for women in business or is it, is it still I think we're talking about it more. You know, when Camel Assembly started, you know, nearly half a decade ago in September, we we were creating spaces that didn't exist. You know, the idea of women, there's enough space at the border, in the boardroom for many women was genuinely like an unusual narrative. So I think that that's not unusual anymore. I think the challenge is that we've taken, uh, you know, I don't even like the term female empowerment because it's the idea of one person giving power to another person. I think the idea of... Um, visibility of women unfortunately has entered the workforce in a way that is still very masculine and I think that's a, a problem because we're just taking the same problem and putting a different veil on it um, I think that a lot of women are benefiting from the conversation I think a lot of those women are people who are already pretty okay you know um, I don't think that we are having enough conversation and putting enough action behind bringing in genuinely ostracized parties or, or genuine minorities. You know, I don't see enough conversation around women of color. I don't see enough conversation around queer people. I don't see enough conversation around non-binary people. I don't see enough conversation around disabled people. And I think I, I'm part of that, like, because, you know, we can only, um, 
do so much and I think that we've had a focus and we're constantly trying to improve and constantly trying to check ourselves but um, I think it, we just need more help and we just need more people to be real about that and I think people are so scared there's so much fear you know we talk about power you know talking about going back to that topic of say news anchors being like would they want to do this if it wasn't a school day it's like that's a very shallow way for us to look at it right we can look at that and be like you're cynical no you're scared you're scared of the power of giving a good narrative to kids who want to make change in a way that's different to how you want to make change and when we think about power i actually don't think ready people are ready to relinquish it i think they'll say they are because i and i say this because i've been in so many rooms now with very very powerful people who say things like we want more diversity we want more creativity we want more young people and the room reflects none of that mm. And well, look at the Oscars, for example. I mean, the people that are deciding who wins the Oscars, majority are still, after all the controversy they've had year after year on things like Twitter, they're still a majority of white men. Homogeny. You know, deciding and I think on that's true of most things because, right. like, what people, I think, fail to talk about when we're talking about representation and diversity of any kind is that it requires sacrifice and it requires power sharing. And it's, it's not a, you know, not to say that in a... a fear-mongering way but you know if if we've recognized that you've always had three quarters of the pizza and I've had one quarter of the pizza and we're now fighting for equality you can't just say yes I believe in it but not give me the other quarter and that's what we're doing we're like yes we need to share without realizing that that means yeah you are gonna lose some of your pizza and I, I think that that's actually just not something people are willing to confront I think people are really scared of that your analogy about sharing the pizza is a fascinating one and again I I'm with you. I, I'm I'm a liberal. Mm. I'm like you. I I, I believe in it. Uh, I believe that the world uh, should go this way. Unfortunately, voting Trump in makes me feel like it's going the other way. Mm. Um, but hopefully, that will swing back. But you know, the the the, the way that I see as as a white male, the way the counter argument I hear in in my uh, system is, is 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 things like, well, I'm bigger than you, uh, so I need to eat three pieces, and you only need one. Mm. Right. Equally, when taking it outside the pizza analogy, it's more like, well, we're just going to hire the best people. Does it really matter where they come from or who they are? Mm. But then, it, then it's a question of, well, I'm not going to hire a woman because I'm told I need a quota of a woman in a boardroom. Right. Mm. So there seems to be, you know, some sort of push and pull. You hire the best people, yes, but there is an argument that enough women aren't given the experience to get to the point where they're useful on a board. Right? Yeah, I, so it's, I it's think all it's filters all the way down, right? It's, it's just a, it's an oversimplification. I think if we're still saying that, it's like, and I hear a lot of people talk about that, and it's like, well, yeah, because women have never had the opportunity for the education and training mm. that most white men have. Right. And I, I think it's, it's, it, I don't even know how to kind of get to that conversation with people because if, if that's truly what you believe, then I don't think you're listening. And I am not somebody who's going to educate you on the history of, of the workforce and oppression. You know, like, I, I don't think that people are, no, I do. I do think that people are selfish when they, ha when they, that's their point. It's like, if, if that's genuinely your perspective, I think that you are scared. And I've started calling people out about that because it just won't work unless we put ourselves to the side, you and, know? And again, it's, I mean, I feel like it's a two or three generation investment, isn't it? So um, just jumping uh, back to something you said earlier, you're, you're studying your own podcast. What's the name of the podcast and what's the purpose? It's going to be Camel Assembly Radio. Uh, we sit down with female artists and activists and we talk to them about what they're making 
and how they're making change. And it was an opportunity for us to highlight some of the incredible women in our community, you know, some that were working on political campaigns, others that were photographers for, you know, Cardi B and, you know, other celebrities and what they've learned in their journey and how they maintain being artists and people who are making and people who are activists and people who believe in improving their community. When will the podcast be live? I want to listen to this. We are launching on International Women's Day 2020. Um, that's when the first episode will go live. It'll be available on all streaming platforms. Very excited. Well, I'm just going to end uh, the podcast. Thank you so much. Uh, we'll jump over to YouTube now and do something called Extra Time, which means that if people are interested in what you're saying, they can hear a little bit more. But I want to thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. This has been fun.